Hey, do you feel like you're getting thrown around the healthcare system and are frustrated with the lack of clarity that you're getting from your providers? Do you feel like you're getting suboptimal care and that you deserve better? Do you want help busting some myths and deciphering what's good and bad information out there? If you'd like to be a part of a community that's connected with the best resources in the area and is taking small steps toward their health and fitness goals, then this podcast is for you. My name is Jeff Danning, and welcome to the Seeking Wellness Podcast. What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in today to episode three of the Seeking Wellness Podcast, Southeast Idaho edition. My name is Jeff Denning, doctor of physical therapy and golf fitness professional. Today, we are talking about pain. We are primarily answering the question, what is pain? We're going to give a, kind of a historical overview about different, uh, different beliefs about what pain was and how to fix it and kind of why those models don't hold up in the long term and i'll give you an analogy to take home and kind of present pain with a new light and hopefully shed uh shed some myths about pain and why it may not be as bad as you think so i think to start it's kind of helpful to understand how pain science has evolved and how our beliefs about pain have changed and why it's not always as simple as hey you've got XYZ problem, this is why you have pain. So back in like 8th century BC, we get Homer who believed that when you experience pain, you are basically getting shot with an arrow by the gods. You have Aristotle in like the 300 BC era where he believed that pain was kind of an entrance into your body from a a negative deity, uh, a bad spirit, Uh, a potential evil and that you had to of course expel that to get rid of your pain and of course we know that's probably not true Um, I mean I don't want to rule out miracles or anything because I've seen some some pretty crazy things happen I've heard some amazing stories but that's that's probably not a good foundation to base our pain science upon okay so fast forward to mid to late uh 17th century, we get, I believe you pronounce it, he's a, he's a French guy, René Descartes, and he talked about kind of the Cartesian model of pain. So this sort of explains pain in a one-to-one ratio of like uh, input to damage, right? So if I give you, uh, if I hit your foot with a 10-pound hammer, then you will experience 10 pounds of pain, right? It's sort of a a one to run ratio. If I get one unit of pain, then I will have one unit of damage to my body. Okay. We know that's, that's not true. I'll explain that a little bit more when I talk about the, the biomedical model, but it doesn't always add up, right? When we, when we get a paper cut, right? A paper cut hurts like a mother for anyone that has dealt with a paper cut, and I'm assuming that's almost everybody. But uh, a paper cut is not inherently harmful to our system, right? We know that a paper cut will heal in a few hours or a few days, and it's not a big deal, but it hurts a ton, right? So there's a mismatch there. Same thing with, uh, with the reverse end of the spectrum and bruises, right? So a bruise is a clear, obvious sign of tissue damage it is ruptured blood vessels, it is damage to the muscle belly, something is going on that 
that uh, proposes clear tissue damage that something has been injured. But for some weird reason, we often find ourselves in situations where we're like, huh, I don't know how that bruise got there. Touch it, doesn't hurt at all, right? So what is the deal there, right? We have a clear sign of something going on, an injury, but it doesn't hurt and we have no idea how we got it, right? So that, that one to one unit of pain, one unit of pain equals one unit of damage does not always add up. Then fast forward to mid to late 19th century, we get something um, talking about the gate theory of pain, right? And I'll, I'll try to kind of explain that. The gate theory of pain sort of proposed that a, a painful or we call it a noxious stimulus to your system could be counteracted by a, a non-painful stimulus or a positive stimulus. And so if I hit you in the head with a hammer, that's one, really mean, but two, also really painful. If I hit you in the head with a hammer and don't allow you to rub your head afterwards, it's probably going to be even more painful, right? Why? So their theory was that you can kind of um, close the gate of pain, I guess, with a positive stimulus. So that positive stimulus would be like pressure from your hand, kind of rubbing it, that light touch, that deep pressure sensation is kind of a neutralizing stimulus for that, uh, that hammer blow to the head. But even that doesn't fully add up all the way, right? We get uh, something called phantom limb pain for people that have had amputations, right? And so they can experience pain in their leg that has been amputated, right? It's physically no longer part of their body. So how does that work? If we're getting an input from something that doesn't even exist anymore, how can we... Um, neutralize that pain how can we like you can't rub you can't rub your uh amputated leg to make it feel better right that doesn't make sense and it falls a little bit short in uh the rehab in the medical world too as well right this is kind of the foundation that like a tens unit is built on or electric stimulation right um if you have knee pain and you put the you slap some tens on your knee and um turn it up and so you've got some of that like staticky feeling um, sort of a numbness tingly shocky feeling and for some people it feels really good and they like it which is fine but usually once you take that off the pain doesn't go away right uh, it's it only works while it's on and so there's some uh, there's some gaps in like the treatment side of things for that as well and so fast forwarding to more of the uh, the end of the 20th century, the late 1900s, we have kind of the biomedical model, which is what a lot of healthcare practitioners, a lot of clinicians, doctors, nurses, surgeons, physical therapists, chiropractors, they base their treatment and diagnoses on the biomedical model. And so I'll point out a couple things wrong with the bio biomedical model as well. It's right sometimes, but for the majority of like non-traumatic injuries, I would say it does more harm than good. And so when we look at the biomedical model, right, it's, it's sort of similar to the uh, Cartesian model of pain where you get one unit of pain for one unit of damage, right? It's saying that the worse your pathology is, the worse your injury is, then the more symptoms you're going to have. 
okay? And that makes sense to a degree, right? Especially in cases with trauma, right? You just tore your ACL, um, you got in a car wreck and fractured, you know, uh, multiple bones in your legs, or you got hit by something, you had some trauma happen to your system and there's clear sign of tissue damage from a specific event, right? Uh, heard something snap when you were throwing or boxing, something like that. There's a specific event that's related to that pathology. And that makes sense, right? Uh, a fractured leg certainly doesn't feel good. And so to, to that extent, the biomedical model kind of makes sense, right? The, the worse the fracture, just a tiny break in the bone is probably not going to be as bad as a uh, full-on separation of the bone, right? And so to some degree, it's, it's valid and holds up. But there's other scenarios where it doesn't really make a sense, right? So um, one scenario is that we can have a ton of pathology, ton of injury as seen on like an MRI, an X-ray, a CT scan, but we have no symptoms. We see this all the time actually, which is why I don't like this model. And um, I might even do a whole episode explaining kind of my beef with imaging and uh, its relation to pain. But we see people who have a giant disc herniation in their low back or their neck, right? We see people who have a massive rotator cuff tear. We see people who are quote bone on bone in their hip and have horrible osteoarthritis. They have a meniscus tear, a bucket handle tear that is going to just be horrible, right? And so uh, these people, they get this, this image of their low back, their neck, their knee, whatnot, and lots of pathology on that, right? There's lots of things quote unquote wrong or abnormal about that image but they don't have pain, which is the weird part, right? Lots of people can present with crazy stuff on their imaging and not present with pain. This has been studied throughout all body parts and really kind of points to a bigger problem of us sort of over-medicalizing pain and wanting to just image the crap out of everything. And so the converse is also true, right? We can have an intense, exorbitant amount of pain, but our imaging comes back completely fine, right? How many times have you heard someone go to the emergency room with excruciating back pain and they say, well, let's go get an image, let's go get an MRI. And lo and behold, everything's fine. The image looks good, maybe some normal age-related changes, but nothing that stands out to the radiologist uh, the or the emergency physician. So what do they do? They say, well, you're probably fine. Take some Advil, put some ice on it and go home. So again, that's not helpful. That's a mismatch in what we see inside the body versus what you are experiencing, right? So there it doesn't add up either. Then finally, if we think that symptom pathology is directly cor correlated with like the uh, intensity of pain or the intensity of the symptoms, then treating that pathology would automatically make that pain get better, right? If I have uh, a problem in my shoulder and I treat 
my shoulder, then that should always get better, right? If I cut out that rotator cuff tear or repair it, if I um, inject it with a corticosteroid with uh, massive anti-inflammatory effects, then my shoulder pain should get better, right? But as you know, that's not always the case. We have plenty of people who get these surgeries and or other invasive methods plenty of people who undergo these medical procedures that don't get a benefit afterwards or maybe they do temporarily but their problem comes back in the long term right so we treated the problem we fixed the tear but you still have pain what's the deal there and so that takes us kind of the back to the first uh first problem that we talked about is that we can have um, or the second problem th that we talked about where we can have lots of pain but no problems on imaging. So doesn't always match up there, the biomedical model, but unfortunately that's how most of our uh, medical hospitals, outpatient clinics, that's how most of them operate. And so now modern 21st century pain science is kind of telling us that, okay, I think all of these or some of these theories, some of these models probably have some merit in them. And so maybe we can take a little bit from the biomedical model. Maybe we, we can take a little bit from this other model and combine it. And so we call it, at least in the physical therapy field, the, the biopsychosocial model where we, we consider pain on a broad scale and that there's lots of factors that play into your pain experience. Things like diet, how good is your nutrition? Things like activity level, what is your movement? What's your exercise patterns look like? Things like sleep, how much sleep are you getting? Are you getting enough? Do you feel tired throughout the day? Things like stress levels, of course things like social support and the environment that you were injured in and your beliefs about pain. What do you think is causing your pain? Do you think there's damage behind your pain? Do you think you're making yourself worse and you're gonna be stuck in a painful cycle forever? All these things play into your pain experience. And so it's hard to just pinpoint one cause of pain. It's usually not just as simple as, okay, let's cut your disc herniation out let's just do this because that's only focusing on the bio portion of the psychosocial model right it's only um, addressing that biomedical model and so that brings us to our question right so if pain is not explained it well in any of these ways then what is pain well simply put pain is an output from the brain it's not an input from your body to the brain. Um, you can think about it like this. If pain was an input from your body to your brain, then everything that we would experience would be the same across all people, right? If I poked myself with a needle, if I poked you with a needle, if I poked your best friend, your dog, your mom with a needle, then we would all feel the same pain experience, right? Because the input was all the same. But I can tell you that if I poked everybody with a needle, we would not all experience the same thing. I would probably experience a little bit more because I'm kind of a baby. Maybe you would experience less pain because you're a, a tough guy or a tough gal. But pain 
is an output from the brain. It is a, it's a construct that your brain decides when you experience pain, okay? So yeah, you can definitely get any input from any part of your body, but your brain decides how to interpret that pain, okay? So at a basic level, our brain is just trying to survive. It's trying to do the bare minimum it has to to survive, and it wants to deal with the most immediate threats to any threat of survival and take care of those quickly. And we can think about it like this. If you are on a hike and you're walking up kind of a rocky trail, maybe you didn't wear the best shoes today, and you misstep and roll your ankle, right? You get an ankle sprain that hurts and is super tender to walk on. You can't put a lot of weight through it. And now your hike is going to be a little more difficult. But 10 minutes later, you see across your path a few, I don't know, 100 feet down, you see a mountain lion, right? A mountain lion comes out of the brush. Uh, if any of you follow like Utah news, this actually happened, I think it was last year, down in Provo area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, a hiker actually filmed the entire encounter and did a pretty impressive job of staying calm, backing away slowly. Uh, it was pretty amazing. But for most of us, our alarm systems would kick off, right? We would be on extremely high alert. I got stressed out just watching that video. But when we see that mountain lion and we're like, holy cow, my life could potentially be in danger right now because this mom is trying to protect her cubs. Are you thinking about your ankle sprain that you just got 10 minutes ago? Probably not, right? That is not the most important um, threat that is not the most immediate problem in the vicinity right now. I can almost guarantee that you would be able to run. You probably shouldn't run away from a lion if that video is evidence of anything, you should back away slowly, but you could run on it. You could um, walk on it without experiencing pain, right? There may be some stretched ligaments out there that you sprained or even some tears potentially, but your brain is basically overriding that signal and saying, hey, we need to take care of this mountain lion problem. Not exactly the same, but we can, we see this sometimes in sports where people get a pretty significant injury and they continue to play through it. A lot of it could be chalked up to like lots of blood flow pumping, blood flow pumping through there since they are um, playing a sport, their heart rate's elevated, lots of endorphins going through natural painkillers that our body produces. But for them, their focus, their brain is telling them that they need to concentrate on what is going on in the game. That is the most important thing to them right now, not the injury, right? And then hours later, once they've won or lost and the outcome of the game has been decided, then their brain says, okay, now we can focus on the injury and take care of this. So to wrap that all up, I'll, I'll leave you guys with an analogy that I think is probably the best at understanding pain and kind of how pain relates to our brain. So we can think about pain as an alarm system. And this is better shown uh, visually, but I'll do my best to explain it since we are on a podcast. So if you can picture just a graph, right? on the x-axis, the horizontal axis, you have time. 
on the y-axis you have uh, pain or increased threat of perceived pain at least. And so near the top of the graph you have another horizontal line, we'll call that like the threshold line. So if you go above that then you are experiencing pain. If you are below that then your brain says, eh, let's, let's not worry about it, no pain for me. And so normally you've got your trend line just humming along kind of way below that pain level, right? Most of us, well, I don't know if I can even say most of us, but uh, a lot of us are should be just humming around at a normal pain-free level throughout our day. There are ups and downs, of course, it's not a, a constant line, but most of the time, our, our brain says we don't need to worry about anything too severe. And so imagine you're just going about your day and then all of a sudden you step on a nail, right? We can see that trend line spike up immediately, right? Once it goes above that threshold, our alarm system kicks on and says, hey, Jeff, I think you might need to pay attention to something going on down in your foot area. I think there is a danger, uh, a potential danger, and you should check into it. And so, right, of course, our brain is smart and it is telling us to get that nail out of our foot, right? Because that is not beneficial to our long-term health or survival. And so there it's a protective mechanism and we go to the emergency room to get the nail removed, we get our tennis shot, um, we get it stitched up if we need to. And over time, it starts to heal. So what did that, what did that trend line look like? Well, it spiked up initially, right? When, our, when we stepped on the nail and it probably stayed elevated until the nail came out and then was even elevated after it came out for a while. As the healing process starts to take place over hours, days, maybe weeks even, then that trend line starts to come down, right? And eventually it should come back down to zero or baseline where you're normally at, okay? Where there's a big gap between that threshold line and your baseline, and it takes a lot of pain stimulus to set that off, to set that alarm off. The problem we get is, especially in people who have chronic pain, who have pain long, the problem we get is that when people have chronic pain, long lasting chronic pain, that that trend line, that doesn't come all the way down to baseline like it should, right? It'll come down a little bit below, <clears throat> below that uh, threshold line, but it doesn't come all the way down like it should. And so now instead of having this big whatever 10 point gap between baseline and our threshold line where the alarm system goes off now we only have maybe a one point gap and we're just hovering right below that threshold and so if you think about it then any little movement could set that alarm system off and so if you bend over the wrong way if you brush up against something wrong things that normally wouldn't set that alarm system off are now causing your brain to send a pain stimulus out and say, eh, I think something might be wrong, you need to check it out, even though these are completely normal movements, normal things that shouldn't be causing pain. So 
what do we do about that? Well, we need to get that baseline back down to where it should be so that your body can tolerate more movement, uh, more stimulus before that alarm system goes off, right? We either need to raise that threshold or lower our baseline, essentially, right? To create more space so that not all these little movements, um, these normal things are setting it off. You can kind of think about it at, like a security light, a floodlight in your backyard, right? These floodlights are designed to turn on at nighttime and detect like potential intruders, right? It will um, shine a really bright light if like a, an intruder, a robber is crossing your backyard wanting to break in through the back window, something like that. And so the issue comes about when these lights are tuned too sensitively, right? And they start going off when an intruder is not there and it, and it spooks you, right? And so the light goes on. Maybe it was just a raccoon or even a smaller animal, like a squirrel or something running across the, the grass. Or even more sensitive, even just a leaf blowing across the lawn, right? And so these are things that the alarm should not be detecting. They should be going under the radar but for some reason that system is tuned up too high, that sensitivity is a little too high, and so it's detecting things that it shouldn't be. Things that shouldn't be problems, things that shouldn't be threatening are now perceived as dangerous by the floodlight. And so that analogy, it's kind of the same thing with our brain, right? Things that shouldn't be threatening, things that are normal, perfectly normal movements, perfectly normal activities are now viewed as painful for some reason because our sensitivity is turned up too high. So just to summarize that, yes, pain is all an output from the brain, but no, that does not mean it's all in your head. I get that, I get that question sometimes from some of my patients. Um, I haven't had any bad experiences, but I've heard people having <laughs> poor experiences with kind of describing this analogy because then the patients will say, well, you just think I'm crazy. You think it's all in my head. You think I'm just making it up, right? And no, that's absolutely not what I'm trying to say. Don't, don't get my words twisted. Um, it does come from the brain, but that doesn't mean you are making it up. Your pain experience is absolutely real. It is absolutely unique to you. And there are, as we talked about, lots of factors that play into your pain experience. I don't think you're a baby. I don't think you are trying to make up your pain um, for some alternative uh, benefit. And I think we just need to meet you where you're at, kind of understand what your beliefs are about your pain and see where we can go from there and see how we can change your beliefs slowly over time, change your behaviors and start to introduce some uh, non-threatening stimulus to hopefully decrease or increase that space between the uh, trend line and the threshold line so that not everything is just setting off your pain alarm. So yeah, pain is pain's complicated. As I'm sure you guys can understand now, there's a lot of nuanced discussions around pain that go into it. This is just kind of a, a taster session and some good bullet points that I have learned and that I've found helpful throughout my career so far. So I, I'll probably do like a mini pain series on this, maybe two or three more episodes about um, kind of dive a little bit more into imaging, 
manual therapy, like hands-on care, how that kind of ex- affects pain, like spinal manipulation, cracking necks and backs, things like that, and how we use those tools in combination with exercise and kind of teaching education, pain science stuff to our patients to really deliver a unique experience. So I hope you guys found that helpful. I'd love to chat if you guys have any questions or doubts or criticisms for me. I would be happy to address them. So stay tuned for the next episode in a couple of weeks, and I will see you then. Hey, everybody. I just want to say thank you for listening to the Seeking Wellness Podcast. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss out on any of these great episodes. If you haven't left me a review yet, that would mean the world to me so I can implement any of your feedback that you have for me. And if you feel compelled to do so, share this out with more people, because my goal is to connect with and help as many people as possible in our community. And finally, if you have any ideas for future episodes or suggestions on guests I should interview, please shoot me a message because I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again, and until next time.